Hi, thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're going to talk about everything cotton with Marzia Lanfranchi of Cotton Diaries. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Lauren Hill. I'm Catherine Tedrow. And I'm Daniela Arzaga. We're the founders of Population, a change agency blending the creative and strategic to embed an integrated approach to sustainability into brand, marketing, and business model strategy. We convene the much-needed conversations about systems change by centering stakeholders across the entire value chain, all the way from supply to demand, to co-create the solutions to the biggest sustainability challenges facing our industry. Today, we're speaking with Marzia Lanfranchi, an independent sustainable fashion consultant and founder and director of Cotton Diaries, a global community of storytellers and professionals committed to making cotton supply chains more sustainable. We'll be discussing the entire value chain from seed to shelf and why it is so important that we center the voices and experiences of farmers as we work to make cotton cultivation more sustainable and equitable. Hi, Marcia. Thank you for being with us today. Hello, Danielle, Catherine, and Lauren. It's Hi, so wonderful to be here. First question. You are in a really interesting space in the industry, specifically for cotton and denim. How was it that you came to occupy the space that you do? And what does it look like from where you're at? So I actually think about it sometimes, uh, how I came to this space, because um, sometimes it's just instinct. And then uh, I just go with the floor. But I think um, the basic uh, principle that came, that drove me to where I am at the moment are, one is curiosity and um, the other one is restlessness. I cannot stay in the space where I am without understanding what's next and, uh, and really deepening my understanding of the supply chain, the system I uh, live within and actually you know, even at a personal level at large. So long story short, <laughs> I graduated uh, in fashion design. And then while I was uh, doing my study, I came to the realization that this fashion system is quite unhealthy. <laughs> and so in my quest to understanding what, where, I, where my best position was, I covered a number of different roles. And the last one before founding Cotton Diaries that you mentioned, it was uh, within a quite fairly large retailer in the UK. And I was doing these uh, cotton raw material, sustainable cotton raw material strategy. I mean, to put it in CSR terms. And I was behind these desks doing all these numbers, like what certification should we get? What is the best strategy to have sustainable cotton? Big Excel spreadsheets and um, talking a lot to my sourcing team, et cetera. And then I realized that I had never been on a cotton farm, never ever got in touch with a cotton farmer and I was working in the fashion industry had been working at the time for I think over nine years or ten maybe even and uh, that I think was the turning point that made me feel like there was something wrong (laughs) if I were 
in a good position to do a raw material strategy without even knowing that raw material. And so I quit my job. And because after seven months, actually, of uh, trying to understand if I could, within a company, doing a better role, understanding and going on the ground to understand what we were actually talking about when we were talking about sustainability, I understood that the only way to do it was to just just, uh, quit and pack my bags and go on the farms. And so that's um, when you mentioned that I met farmers across the U.S., that's when I did it back. I think was three years and a half ago. I went um, to uh, live and work with some farmers as well as at the time filming and interviewing them. With some of them, I, I tried to work with them and, and stay within their farms. And then with others, I just interviewed. And I interviewed also a number of agronomists, uh, seed breeders, and anyone that was within the cotton supply chain that I haven't heard from before. And both like organic farmers, uh, better cotton initiative farmers, conventional, anyone in between. I was just curious to find out what sustainability actually meant on the ground from the field. And uh, yes, and you asked, what does it look like from where I sit? And actually right now, like I I should mention, uh, I came back. And um, I actually traveled across different countries, not just the U.S. I visited cotton farms in Burkina Faso, Turkey. I've had contacts with farmers globally in India, Brazil, Australia, etc. So what it looks like from here, it looks sometimes very overwhelming because the amount of challenges that people deal with uh, across the globe is it can sometimes be overwhelming but it's also very inspiring because I keep listening to people that are enacting change some way to their the extent that it's possible for them and uh, they come up with real solutions that are viable in the geographies and the systems that I operate in and so it makes me really inspired it's not just sitting on a desk, uh, like behind a screen and, and talk about what you, what you wish to do or the change that you want to see in the world. And I, I actually get to speak to the people that are enacting that change that I want to see. So it's, it's very inspiring in here. So inspiring. I mean, for all three of us, that's kind of why, why we are doing what we're doing is we don't want to be just sitting behind the computer screen either. And we're not quite to the like going to the farm level of that dream, but someday soon, hopefully. Can you talk more, Marcia, about just the system of cotton from seed to shelf and the different organizations and different stakeholders and leverage points in that system? Because you already talked about having a systems lens. That's kind of how we like to propose the, the problem and solution on the show. Yeah. If you talk about supply chain, I think it's easier to describe than the system. Because mm-hmm. I like that you talk about systems and not just supply chain, because that's what we should be looking at when, we, when it comes to cotton. If I were to describe simply the supply chain is that you have seeds, so you're most likely to have uh, some seed breeders working on it or big agricultural companies that provide inputs. Then you have the farm, then you have the ginner. And um, the ginner is, I don't know if uh, 
oftentimes when I mention gin, people think that it's uh, it's a drink, but it's actually the facility <laughs> that cleans the cotton and uh, provides um, and and separates the lint from the seed. So the lint is what we then will turn into the fiber that we use for fashion. And then when we go to to the fashion supply chain, then we go to either a trader that uh, will trade that lint, or if it's direct, uh, which often is not the case, we go to uh, a spinner and so on and so forth. I think I should um, stop there because we all know and the rest of the fashion supply chain. But then if you're actually talking about the, the cotton supply chain, it can go into our food because um, then uh, the seed provides um, seed oil for a number of um, food products and or it can be fed to cattle. So that's part of some other, like another supply chain stream with cotton because often you know, we also only think about the, the lint and not the, the seed and uh, we think about cotton as a non-food product which in a lot of countries is categorized as a food crop i didn't know that and actually hmm. so margarine from yeah uh, cotton seed oil then uh, you have uh, you have a lot of um, different products derived from it especially in the u.s and um, can be used for compost uh, some of the how do you say the dirt <laughs> When you talk to farmers, it's interesting because I didn't know that. But when I went to the farm, they say, like, we don't throw anything away of the cotton. Mm. Nothing is thrown. There's very, very little waste. We use the whole of the cotton plant. Um, across the board, across, like, between conventional and organic, that's just part of the cotton farming practice, that there's very little waste. My understanding, and I always say my understanding because uh, it's uh, it's always uh, this discovery journey that uh, I may I may be wrong, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yes, my understanding is that uh, yeah, it's true across the board, and because um, that's that's how it's been. Uh, also, it's not very convenient uh, to produce uh, waste uh, that might mm. be usable in other. <laughs> but you know, when when I love cat that you said system. And, and you keep talking about this system because we, apart from that aspect, you also um, need to consider that cotton is in rotation with food crops uh, most of the time. So, mm-hmm. and it's complementary, it has a really deep root system. So it's complementary with other crops that are grown on the farm. And for some, some farmers, it has been found to be found a key, a key crop. There's a lot of other aspects that are involving the largest system, so the agriculture and food supply chains and our, how do you say, agricultural system at large. Um, so it's not just, uh, let's just, I want to break these silos, like let's break the silos of fashion. Fashion is not just fashion. Fashion is also interconnected with food, is interconnected with agriculture, is interconnected with so many other industries. An important, I think, perspective that not many people in the industry have right now, honestly. And Marzia, we focus probably with a heavy hand on brands in the system and their responsibility as a leverage point for change. And since you've been at the farm level, where are, and this will lead into another question about the cotton system specifically right now and what's going on with Xinjiang. But what do you feel like fashion brands 
are responsible for right now in the system? I think, again, like maybe I'm, uh, I'm too much of a um, utopian thinker, but... Uh, so are we. <laughs> <laughs> but we need to change the system that we operate in before... And fashion system operates within this larger system that is based on exponential growth. And um, I think we just need to shift the focus towards... Uh, some call it degrowth, I call it redistribution of wealth. And in the fashion system specifically, what are your profit margins? Look at the profit margin of a farmer and then like go back to your desk and see if the numbers uh, make sense. I don't think they make sense at all because we, have, um, we just uh, have this um, system where we, we take advantage and benefits from global market, but we don't... Mm give back to and contribute to global solutions. So, so I think that's, mm. um, that's the problem with, uh, with brands and uh, that there's this greed. And uh, I remember at one podcast that I listened to and um, forgive me, but it's you know, the usual suspect. Yvonne Chinar was saying there's uh, two types of growth. One is uh, you grow fat and the other one you grow stronger. And at the moment we're, every brand, investor, shareholder, and we're all focusing on growing, you know, bigger, fatter, and take it all home. And uh, maybe we just um, stop giving pocket money to philanthropy and just step in and, um, and grow stronger together with the partners in our systems and in our supply chains. Sorry, mm. I'm a bit... <laughs> no, I, I love that you I'm very furious that about it. <laughs> It's important though, right? Like we've been talking with more people about that and are really excited to be elevating that conversation, this conversation on the podcast, that sometimes you hear brands say, oh, we can't make that work with our margins. But what that really means is we don't want to make that work with our margins because we want to continue to accrue wealth. And so the issue is really looking at like how, how much are we willing to redistribute and I don't want to say share because it implies that the wealth is that brands are entitled to the wealth and they aren't. <laughs> they build a lot of wealth off of the work of other people. And so what you're bringing up about, you know, brands responsibility to look at the margins of their supply chain partners mm-hmm. and really look at what, what change is possible with the margins that supply chain partners have. And then you look at the flip side of that, which is the work that you've done in going to farms and talking to farmers and seeing the work that they're doing with really tight margins is pretty amazing. And then you have brands who make, you know, this isn't across the board, but an extreme example, you have brands who are making no progress and have these really fat margins. And the disconnect there is so interesting and really needs to be talked about more. This responsibility of brands to really look at their business models and question like what is really necessary and what is required of brands in their margins to create the change that really needs to happen in the system and in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering... Do you have an idea, I'm sure you do, a kind of an estimate of what, what's the percentage like, of the margin that most, most cotton farmers or farmers in general are, are usually working with? My guess is that some of them don't even break even. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ones that are lucky, my guess, from talking to, to farmers, and you know, it's always like this, um, it depends where, it depends how, it depends what size of farm, because uh, if we do, you know, an average doesn't make sense uh, uh, across 
the global and global averages in this agricultural context is are are quite delicate. But my my understanding is that one percent is a good a best case scenario in in a lot of cases. That's insane. Yeah. Brands are working more with like a 30% margin. At least. I mean, it depends the, on their business model. If you get like a yeah. direct consumer brand, they're operating with huge margins, humongous margins. Because you're cutting course. out that the wholesale level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also we have to consider, I think it's aside from maybe margin is, a, is a one way to look at it. I remember Kim, our mutual friend, Danielle from Manufacture Podcast, was mentioning mm-hmm. about the, it's about the redistribution of risks and awards mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. rather than margins. And, and, you know, what's the risk of a farmer? What's the award that they get? And what are what is the incentive mechanism there? Because a lot of the countries, for instance, uh, they have, governments have subsidies for mm-hmm. cotton farmers and they subsidize the costs, the real costs, of, of cotton and so I don't quite understand the economics uh, the fully the economics behind um, the cotton system because it's in a commodity it's a commodity system it's uh, subsidized by governments in in a lot of cases uh, it's not direct uh, brands don't buy directly to farmers so sometimes the government buys the cotton so it's very it's very complex so it's hard to maybe just pin it down on on profit uh, but it mm. could be a way of looking at it for sure mm. the cotton supply chain is notoriously complex and fragmented and you know i i feel like in some ways people are benefiting from the fact that they don't know where their cotton is actually grown and so they can you know kind of sweep under the rug some of these issues that they choose not to face because of this complexity but I, yeah. I feel like we're seeing certain brands and mills maybe moving in this direction of wanting to go direct to farmer. Definitely yeah. it hasn't, I mean, we haven't reached that point where it's the norm, but something that's, mm-hmm. yeah. we've seen, we've seen some movement, some progress there. Absolutely. And I think to mention one, and, and this was an idea uh, maybe for some of the audience would be, would be interesting to explore one of our the Cotton Diaries community member is uh, Beto Mina from, um, he works with Beja, the shoe company. Mm-hmm. You, I am, and they have, what they've built into their model is an agricultural budget. Mm. And with that agricultural budget, they're able to support agronomists, uh, people over there in the communities that they work with, that, you know, a company these communities with um, extension services understand what the real needs are on the ground are in touch with that community and can really build uh, strength and um, you know I think they do you source cotton do you have a marketing budget why don't you have an agricultural budget do you have mm-hmm. a marketing budget to put the, the whole campaign around sustainable cotton and claim yeah. that your products are 100% sustainable then you should have an agricultural budget because I don't believe that your products are 100% sustainable until you know where you source mm-hmm. your cotton from and you know the real risk, the real problems uh, and, 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 and work on these solutions. So I think there's a very few brands that are looking into that and I take my hat off for the ones that really stepped and did something towards um, 
towards finding out what the real problems were in their supply chains and are committing uh, with their partners to solve it. And can you talk a little bit about transparency and traceability? I mean, there's a lot of brands right now that are actually don't know the difference between the two and while they're interconnected. And if if you want to maybe bringing in a bit about Jinjang and what's happening there. And I know it's a really complicated system and brands' responsibilities are tied up in transparency and traceability. But if you don't mind talking a little bit about that as an expert, as we see you as an expert in the cotton industry, we would love to hear what you have to say. Kat, let me remind you that I'm not an expert. (laughs) Um, We're not listening to that. (laughs) So yeah, Team Jang has been an issue that I've not been so vocal about, not because I don't like other issues I have been, but I have not a deep understanding of what's going on. And there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of people pretending to know without actually knowing what the situation is. And um, I can only direct you. We did um, with um, Kim Pins trade show a really good chat with um, the Responsible Sourcing Network, who is um, a, an NGO that has been operating to fight for forced labor's issues in cotton supply chains for, I think, decades. And Xinjiang is the latest um, work that they've been doing, but they were the ones uh, doing the work in Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan and and other regions. So I think they are the real experts, one of the groups that could uh, talk about it more. So I wouldn't, I'm I'm not feeling really comfortable to talk about it in depth. But what I can say is that um, often what happens is that there is a scandal and then everyone jumps in. Uh, there's an issue. I mean, Xinjiang, I think uh, there was an awareness that uh, it would have been, that was a high risk issue. And uh, what brands <laughs> do is that when there is a scandal, then they react, react, react. Why? Because they ha- don't have visibility on their supply chain. And so they don't have a proactive mm-hmm. approach towards the risk in the supply chain. And, uh, mm-hmm. and in their system at large. So if uh, until we get real transparency and they have full traceability down to the farm, how can they know down to the farm or the cooperative of the, or further down the chain, how can we know that these issues exist? Because uh, you have, you know, you have certifications, but a third party it's not enough. It will uh, the the checkbox of a, of a certification doesn't uh, as proven, like in this case especially that it's not. It wasn't solid enough work, and we needed to have visibility before an issue arises because Xinjiang is now. What's next? It's interesting because I feel like some of the a lot of the issues that we see as relates to transparency and traceability in supply chains is because of a breakdown in the solutions that we've created that in some way we thought were going to replace partnership. You know, you spoke about what would it look like if brands actually had direct relationships with the farmers who grow the cotton that's sourced for their products. It would look a lot different. And I think we're seeing something similar in a lot of the the scandals that you've mentioned. You mentioned Xinjiang, we talked about it. But in a lot of the other scandals as well, that there's a there is a scandal in this reaction because the tools that we're using, they don't replace partnership, but because there are these large organizations operating at scale and it does take more time 
and more investment to actually have a partnership with someone than it does to have a certification where they're monitored through an auditing scheme. That breakdown causes the reaction, but then we kind of replicate the same solutions that are generating the scandals in the first place. Like would brands, would brands be reacting differently if there were enough transparency and traceability in their supply chains that they had partnerships throughout their entire supply chain in cotton, that they had a clear understanding of what was going on. And so, as you mentioned, they're addressing the risks versus not knowing Mm -hmm. and treating our standards and certifications as good enough. They have a place, but I think sometimes we put so much weight on solutions that we don't see how much we need to pair activities. Like partnership should always be a part of our sustainability strategy. We can't really Mm -hmm. deeply commit to it without it. And there's a place for standards, but standards don't replace the need for partnership. Yeah. I agree with you. And this is something that I've been debating with a lot of colleagues and really good friends in this space. It's, uh, there's, you often measure things that are measurable mm-hmm. and then you have a result on your sustainability, but it had, had been proven that it's not very effective in, some, mm-hmm. in most cases. How can you measure the quality of a partnership, the quality of life? Uh, and the clear example is that uh, for success of a country, we measure GDP <laughs> instead <laughs> of uh, the well-being of people. And yeah. Um, yeah, and so we have really flawed indicators because they are the ones I think that are easier to understand and assess. At the end of the day, to me, it comes down to how can you measure if you're a good human? Just be one. And um, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I know it's, it may be simplistic, but um, it's, it's what it comes down to for me. And um, yeah, we're obsessing over metrics, over data, over control, auditing. Yeah, these, um, that also further deepens um, the cracks and uh, I think also instigates these power dynamics that are very unhealthy. The, the the system, the supply chains that we operate in. So I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> we just went on a, <laughs> a, a tangent. <laughs> Sorry, Lauren. No, no, you definitely did. And I'm curious too, because we've, you know, we've been unpacking quite a bit about the problem. And one of the things that we really try to do in this space is not just talk about the problems, but talk about potential solutions. So I'm curious to know if you had a magic wand that you could wave over the industry, what changes would you want to see? Yeah. I mean, you've probably heard me. I don't think there's one solution simple that fits all. But um, I think partnership and, and make sure that you focus on, on like really understanding your supply chain and build these long-term relationships rather than move from where sourcing is cheaper which uh, fiber is cheaper and then, you know, focusing on this exponential growth. So I think that's definitely a shift uh, in focus that we all need. Just humans are like need to connect with one another. Can we just do our job and connect with one another? So, yeah. We talk a, a lot about centering, like brand professionals need to decenter their perspective and their place in the industry and center the perspectives and needs and voices of the people throughout the supply chain, supply Mm -hmm. to demand that they're serving in their role. And if there was something that 
you've learned being on the ground with people that you're hoping get centered in the solutions that we're generating that you want brand professionals to hear, what would that be? Like, this is what they're really asking for. This is the support. I know you said partnership, but if there's anything else that's coming to mind, I wanted to open that up. Mm, It's a hard one because, um, so today, for instance, I was talking with a seed breeder from Zambia and in their specific case, uh, there's no organic cotton in Zambia. And there's a, that's the case for a lot of countries because they don't have the infrastructure there or they don't have the agricultural inputs that can provide for organic or they don't have, um, they have lack of access to resources, etc. And what he was saying to me is also, you know, as a, as a cotton breeder, as a researcher, I'm one of the few here and the lack of resources for research for me is a huge gap because I don't understand the state of the industry here. We don't have support for extension services as much, extension services in the meaning of, um, you know, support for farmers. Therefore, we cannot, you know, support more farmers with um, what they call integrated pest management uh, that will uh, minimize or eliminate the use of of hazardous pesticides on on their farm. So that's a specific case. And I think for, um, again, going back to the whole whole of this conversation is that listen to the people that are actually at the ground level and understand their needs before making any assumption based on global average, global statistics and global reports. These consulting firms that make global reports on cotton, they have never been on the ground as I wasn't in the past. And then so, yeah, listen to the people in your supply chain and understand how you can best support. So that's, that's what I would say. I don't know if it's, um, (laughs) if it's one of the solution that um, it's, it's very simple. I think Mm -hmm. find out, ask questions. Uh, I've asked a lot of questions and people have been really open to talk to me. So listen. (laughs) Well, I think that's where partnership becomes so key that when you have a really convoluted chain between yourself and, for example, a farmer, where there are so many people in between you, then you don't, you don't think to ask the questions or if you had them, you're not necessarily asking the right person. You're not going direct to the source. Um, And I think we definitely have examples of brands doing that work, which is really positive. And, and that's something that we want to see more of in the industry is like just build relationships and partnerships with people, which is what you said. Like how, how hard is it for us to be humans relating to other humans with dignity? It shouldn't be something that we have to talk about, but it is. And we just need more people doing it. It's like have conversations with people, ask questions. Like you said, it's like you've been doing that for the last few years and people are available and accessible. We're just not doing the work of going to them and asking questions. I've come up like with simple questions, you know, if you're a fashion designer and you're working with a fabric that is made of cotton, you know, ask your supplier who, like, do you know who made this fabric? Uh, Ask your manufacturer who made the fabric. And then you go one step, you know, the textile mill, ask to your fabric supplier. And then if you're a sustainable fashion professional, ask the certification around cotton who actually did make these sustainable cotton fiber do you know no it's a, it's about i think starting also from the closest step that is to you 
and then going a level up and up. And I think it creates a ripple effect on the supply chain once when there is there is that, that demand to know. Uh, I think it can create really, really meaningful conversations and really meaningful, um, how do you say, getting together of people. I'm always like nervous about being um, critical, but as well as giving solutions. Uh, Absolutely. Because um, I always say it's, it's about making it easy for people to understand how they can act now, but also it's about not acting only with one thing now and then you're done. It's mm-hmm. like, what can I do next? And then, and then, and then. <laughs> so, I yeah. that. so lastly, you're doing some incredible work in the industry, but we like to ask people who, uh, it's a, a term we've coined called the unspun hero. So someone that you think is doing great work, who's maybe not in the spotlight, who's not maybe on a podcast interview or speaking at a panel. Is there someone that comes to mind that you would like to, to call out? I mean, I called him out before, Beto. He is my unspun hero, I think. But um, And the problem, Danielle, with the, the unspun hero is that um, a lot of the heroes that I listen to... heroines. Or, or heroes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that I listen I to have very little ego and they're all about the community and they don't want to be named. That's that the whole point. It's <laughs> so fucking inspiring that uh, there's people on the, in the background sending me things and they said, don't tell anyone that I told you that mm. this is how <laughs> things are. Wow. And, uh, and I think there, I love the fact that as Cotton Diaries, we can use these tool for these uh, quiet heroes that or heroes mm-hmm. or however you want to call it uh, to bring issues that um, normally on your everyday role or in, within your organizations you can't really speak up for and because mm-hmm. you're wearing a hat and so it's very difficult for some people within companies to say what's uh, or not not just farmers I'm here I'm talking about uh, love whole set of people that work with farming communities but they can often yeah are strict uh, and um, tied to politics of the sustainability Mm -hmm. i think uh, there was a recent article they called the sustainability inc (laughs) sustainability (laughs) incorporated the big (laughs) this big business of sustainability thank you so much Marcia, I, I know this okay. is the end end of your day, and we really, really appreciate you taking your time. Thanks um, for inviting to stay with really us nice. and talk with us, and it's been it's been really inspiring, also and fun. So, yeah, hope to see you soon and in, in real life in IRL. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this week's guest, Marcia Lamfranchi, for sharing her perspective on the industry. You can follow her work at Cotton Diaries. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at WeArePopulation or visit our website, wearepopulation.com. Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed with Corey Cambridge and mixed by Compost Media Flow. 
Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.